Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. About 6% of Connecticut residents are veterans of the U.S. Armed Forces. Many of them receive benefits that include health care from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Now, what changes could be in store for the beleaguered agency now that the president dismissed VA Secretary David Shulkin and replaced him with White House physician Dr. Ronnie Jackson? Coming up, Washington Post reporter Aaron Blake joins us to talk about the president's choice, and we consider where plans stand to privatize the VA, the target of much-needed reform in recent years. We'll hear from the American Legion and the group Concerned Veterans of America to weigh the pros and cons of allowing more veterans to seek care from private providers. If you're a veteran, we want to hear from you, too. That conversation coming up later. First, the political fallout for 5th District Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty continues. One week ago, the Washington Post and Connecticut Post reported on how she mishandled abuse allegations that involved two former staff members. The news led to multiple calls for her to resign. And earlier this week, she refused to step down, instead asking the House Ethics Committee to investigate how she dealt with the situation. Do you live in the 5th Congressional District? Do you think Esty should resign? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. There are several troubling parts to this story. Uh, Congresswoman Esty kept her former chief of staff, Tony Baker, on the job for three months, despite learning Baker had harassed and threatened another former employee, Anna Kane, while on the job. Kane ended up taking a protective order against him. And before Baker was dismissed by Esty, she agreed to sign a non disclosure agreement that shielded Baker, despite the allegations against him. Congresswoman Esty also worked out a $5,000 severance agreement with Baker and gave him a recommendation letter to obtain a new job. Connecticut Public Radio got copies of both documents earlier this week. News Director Jeff Cohen joins us now with more. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Lucy. So tell us what you asked for specifically. <laughs> we just uh, it was, uh, Thanks for having me, by the way. It's uh, Tuesday morning. Today it's Thursday morning. On Tuesday morning, I just sent a quick email to Esty's current chief of staff, a guy by the name of Tim Daly, and I said, hey, I'd like to see a copy of the, I think I said the severance agreement. It's technically a severance agreement. Uh, and he sent it to me just as an attachment. <clears throat> and uh, then I uh, then I, I read it, and I saw that it also included a promise of a letter of recommendation, so we asked for that also. What we got in response to that request was not actually a letter of recommendation, but uh, a draft letter of recommendation that... Uh, she used as talking points. Should someone call her for a reference, which she almost, which she also promised uh, in the severance agreement. What struck struck you when you read these two documents? I think what strikes anyone, and, and actually it struck her, to be fair, uh, after the fact, was that these documents are intended. This kind of severance agreement, in her words, uh, and, and this was an interview she gave to WNPR last Friday, um, they're intended to protect congressmen and women who do bad things. <laughs> that's what they're that's what they do so they they reach a peaceable agreement with someone who is leaving <clears throat> or uh the employee of a congressperson. Uh in this case the person who did the bad thing is not the congressperson but uh one of her employees. Um so that was interesting. What this does throughout is it goes a, gr- a great deal of distance to protect 
the interest of the congresswoman and her office. Uh, and also, at the same time, uh, gives a lot of consideration to Tony Baker, who's leaving after having done some pretty bad things, including uh, a letter of recommendation for a job outside of D.C., severance pay. You know, uh, I think she waived his student loan payments that uh, he would have had to have repay. Um, scrubbed his personnel file of any negative information. Lots of consideration. So the question is, why would you give so much consideration uh, to, to, to one person? And then there's one other thing that stuck out, and that was um, any notices per- pursuant to this agreement, meaning if you have to talk to us about this thing, were to be provided to the congresswoman and her, through her office at her personal Gmail account. Uh, and that raises <clears throat> to any reporter that raises a red flag. It may not be an actual red flag. I don't know the answer to the question because we asked, "Why would you use that account?" Uh, and didn't didn't among other questions and didn't didn't get an answer. We don't know why uh, the congresswoman chose to use a personal Gmail account as opposed to a government uh, congressional account. Now, the story doesn't stop there. Once you publish these documents Mm. and ask these specific questions, then you heard from the current chief of staff. What happened? Yeah, a a few hours later after it was online, they provided us effectively an unredacted document. We posted it online. And then a few hours later, they they sort of nicely at the beginning said, hey, my my bad. I sent you the wrong document. Can you post this one? This is the one I meant to send. And the one he meant to send was just sort of had scribbled out uh, email addresses. And... We thought about it, and as it pertained to the congresswoman, our first impulse was just to refuse the request. Why? Because this was a, a document that we asked for and legally obtained from the person who was a party to the to the contract. Uh, and it, it, presumably when they sent it to us, they knew it wasn't redacted, uh, or at least they still provided it anyway. Uh, and she's a public official using her private email in the in her public capacity. It was hard to make the to understand the argument. And we went back and forth a few times. And then later in the evening, uh, we got a much more threatening email that said, and this was after work hours, they had copied his lawyer, a lawyer, I'm not sure who, who the lawyer technically represented in this case, that said, uh, there's no, we don't think there's any public interest uh, in disclosing the congresswoman's personal email address. And if you don't take it down, the only reason we could imagine is that it's, uh, if you leave it up is to harass her or to have people harass her. And if you don't take it down, we're going to refer the matter to the U.S. Capitol Police. Woohoo. <laughs> what a what a great position to be in uh, as a news yeah. director. So that that posed us an immediate challenge. And so then you removed the the email address from the the documents. We had a lot of discussions at that point. Uh, and we thought we think mostly about the listener and the audience and what is the greatest value to the listener. Pursuing uh, we have no we had no obligation really. No legal obligation nor did they give us any legal reasoning why we should do what they were asking. Uh, but going down the road that would have that would have involved lawyers and legal things would have gotten most likely in the way of telling the story that the congresswoman both used a personal email uh, in unofficial the, business unofficial business and that she threatened a news organization uh, that would have gotten in the way of the news and gotten in the way of delivering that news to the listeners and to the to the audiences on the web. So that's, that was the decision that we made. I understand there were also reports that she had also used she's a, a Yale alum. she had also used her Yale email address related to this. That's right. Now, so it's worth keeping in mind that when those of us who work in state government are, are familiar with a lot of state FOI laws, which are pretty good in Connecticut. There's a lot of stuff that you can FOI. My brief uh, limited understanding, and I look forward to somebody correcting me, is that Congress people have um, 
chosen not to make their communications nor their emails public you know, <laughs> uh, federally. So um, for lots of probably obvious reasons, they write the laws. They probably don't want people necessarily looking too closely under the hood. Um, that wouldn't, though, answer the question of if let's just say, for instance, their emails weren't disclosable. What then would still be the purpose of using a private email? And I asked that question of the chief of staff, uh, and we've not gotten a response. We should know. Uh, we have, where we live, uh, reached out to Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty to join us on this program uh, earlier this week, and as with two requests, actually, she declined both. Um, it's also worth noting, Jeff, since last Friday, mm. Elizabeth Esty has really kind of disappeared in the sense of not talking to the press, but releasing statements on Monday that she's asked the House Ethics Committee mm -hmm. uh, to investigate how she handled this situation. She said she wants to be a part of the change in terms of how harassment is dealt with on Capitol Hill, uh, but she's not answering questions anymore. She's not. Uh, in fact, her statement on Monday that she was not running again began with a statement that she wouldn't be talking about it anymore. It wouldn't be available for comment, which is a signal. I think she actually pulled back from an event today in Newtown uh, on guns with Senators Blumenthal and Murphy. So uh, there's there is a lot of um, I wouldn't call it. Well, there's damage control, right? You got to figure out how to best best message this. But that's and that's where the problem comes when this becomes. I think more about the message and how you're messaging it than about the things that you're doing. Uh, it's very easy to get tripped up. Uh, and then you get into these situations where suddenly you find yourself threatening a, a reporter. Mm -hmm. And that's just not a it's just not a great place to be. Uh, Jeff Cohen is Connecticut Public Radio's news director. Jeff, thank you for coming in with the latest on uh, the fallout on Elizabeth Estes' uh, a political career as well as what happened when you simply asked for these documents. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, also in studio with us is Ron Shore, an associate professor in residence at the UConn Department of Political Science. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, again, if you live in the 5th District, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people are talking about uh, this last week uh, and how, again, Elizabeth Estes handled, uh, mishandled uh, these abuse allegations between former staffers. We want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Uh, Ron, uh, what do you make of of this this particular story? I mean, in Connecticut, there's always something interesting yeah. happening in politics. But, you know, she said earlier that she's not going to seek reelection. Right. But has that stopped the calls for her to resign? It hasn't stopped the calls. It's diminished them. Governor Malloy, I believe, said that there's no point in her resigning. If she were to resign and this gets into the weeds a bit, um, that would be the first time we've had a congressional seat come vacant during the term since 1987. Congressman Stuart McKinney from the Fairfield County area died in 1987. Um, interestingly, this is actually also the first open seat. So in 20 years, we've had three open seats. This is the third. Congressman Larson elected in 1998 when Barbara Kennelly ran for governor, and then Elizabeth Esty uh, in 2012 when Chris Murphy ran for the Senate. Otherwise, uh, incumbents have been defeated, but this is the first open seat, uh, third open seat in a while. Um, in terms of the resignation, if, if uh, people may not know what happens, the governor calls a special election 60 days hence. If a candidate emerges who is not challenged in either party in a primary, then that election takes place. 
If there is a primary because the candidate got the requisite number of votes at the convention or got the requisite number of petition signatures, then that primary takes place on that 60th day and then the general election 60 days after that. So if that were to happen, we come up to August, which is just around the time of the regular state primary, which is confusing to say the least to many voters. Uh, whether she will resign or not, I don't know. The only real reason for the resignation would be to make a moral statement. It's not like she would behave differently or, I believe, egregiously in the remaining time in office. It would just be to, to sh as a way of uh, um, conveying the seriousness of, of the, uh, the behaviors that uh, she's engaged in. I have to say, you know, talking about the emails, what is it with emails and political people? When all this was going on in terms of her using her Gmail account and so on, the stories of Hillary Clinton's email were all over the papers. It was a key issue in the campaign. Uh, what possessed her to do that? Um, in any event, that's just part of the story, and in some ways... It's kind of the least of it. Ron, uh, talk us through. We only have a couple of minutes, sure. but the 5th District is an interesting congressional district in yeah. Connecticut. Talk about the makeup, and now there's a flurry of activity of who's going who's gonna to run in November. Uh, 41 towns, diverse district. Uh, part of it has uh, called by some the anti-Hamptons, kind of an affluent area that many people, New Yorkers, people like Arthur Miller uh, have residences, but also... Uh, Ordinary towns where people like us, ordinary people, live. Uh, New Britain, Danbury, part of Torrington, part of Waterbury. Um, about similar to Connecticut in most demographic ways, income just a tiny bit below the Connecticut average. Uh, went for Barack Obama uh, both times, a little bit narrower the second time. Went for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, narrower still. Trump carried some towns that Obama had carried before. Uh, Elizabeth Esty ran ahead of Hillary Clinton in her last re-election race, carrying some towns that Hillary lost. Um, but it's a contested district. And uh, in, in uh, some of Elizabeth Esty's campaigns has been a very expensive district in which to do politics. When she ran in 2014 against Mark Greenberg, the two of them combined spent about $4.5 million. And I expect that will be the same that we'll see this time around. Uh, this will be a boon for the pub, for the uh, commercial broadcasters, and um, we will we will have a very vigorous face there. So not it's not a, a, a shoe in that a Democrat could win. Not at all. Not at all. But, um, there was a Republican representative who was defeated in two thousand six. And uh, since then, the Democrats have won, but not by huge margins in most of those races. And uh, just a few names of, of people interested in, in the 5th District, just in the last few days. Uh, I have about 15 names, <laughs> and so I won't go through all of them. But the one that has attracted some attention just today is Dr. Dr. William Pettit, uh, who is in the state legislature and is probably best known because of the horrible, horrific crime that, that befell his, his family. Uh, but others, Aaron Stewart, who is running for governor, but uh, may switch to this race on the Republican side. Uh, former state representative Dan Carter, who ran against Senator Blumenthal last time around. Um, Manny Santos, former mayor of Meriden, is actually a declared candidate, was a declared candidate before the Elizabeth Esty scandal arose. Uh, on the Democratic side, Mary Glassman, a uh, former first select woman in Simsbury, announced her candidacy. 
And uh, other names that have been mentioned uh, include several members of the state general assembly and um, others who have been active in politics generally. Mary Glassman, the former select woman in Simsbury. Simsbury, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned, uh, Ron, that you're associate professor in residence at the UConn Department of Political Science. You spoke to your students the other night yeah. about this particular story. Tell us what they said. Right. Yeah, interesting. I, I, do, I teach a class in Connecticut politics. And uh, one thing that one student said that really resonated was that in all of this, we're talking about Elizabeth Esty. We're talking about potential uh, candidates for the seat. Let's not forget Anna Kane who was the victim in this, in this situation. Um, there was some discussion about whether this comes on the heels of the, the, the Me Too movement, and that's certainly true. But, you know, my career began 40 years ago, and in any office I ever worked in, if one person threatened another with death, that would provoke a response, not in days, but in hours. And so the question was, what in God's name was happening there? And none of us could quite figure it out. Elizabeth Esty has been an effective and and courageous public servant, uh, gave up her seat in the House basically by voting against capital punishment, Um, graduate of Harvard and Yale. What was she thinking? And uh, just to that point, Ron, before she stopped speaking, she was speaking. Before she was not running again, she was firmly staying, apologizing but staying in place. And what she told us, and which was very interesting in an interview on Friday, was uh, Tony Baker held a lot of the cards. He had her passwords. He had the keys to her apartment. He had her tax returns. All of which is to say that at that moment, her she, she and she said this, she had a duty to protect her office and herself. And that's what this severance agreement actually shows. But to your point, uh, it doesn't reflect any consideration uh, for the victim. Uh, and it and it and it sort of goes in the other direction. Hmm. I can only assume that the Congress has a mechanism in place to protect against staff members who might be in a position to wreak havoc. And it seems like the Congresswoman launched her own investigation rather than relying heavily on that mechanism that's in place. I wanted to end the segment uh, reading a tweet from a listener, Allie, who writes, I'm not surprised that Esty decided not to run again, but I'm relieved she didn't walk off the job for two reasons. One, we still need representation. And two, she will still be held accountable by her constituents. Uh, it's any guess when she will hold another public event, mm. uh, but we'll wait and see. Won't be today, I don't think. No. <laughs> I want to thank Connecticut Public Radio's news director, Jeff Cohen, and Ron Shoren, associate professor in residence at the UConn Department of Political Science. Thank you again for coming in, Ron. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we shift to recent news concerning the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. A troubled agency yet again has a new leader at the helm. Who is Dr. Ronnie Jackson? And what's the latest regarding calls to reform the VA? Like privatization, how would that impact the benefits veterans receive? We'll learn more after the break. And you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. So much happens in the Beltway, it can be hard to keep up. Just last week, President Trump announced his new pick to head the behemoth of an agency. That's the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. The administration says former VA Secretary David Shulkin resigned. Shulkin says he was pushed out. So who's his replacement? Joining us by phone is Aaron Blake, senior political reporter covering U.S. politics for The Washington Post. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So what happened specifically with VA Secretary Secretary David Shulkin? There's two stories going on here. Yeah, so basically the president announced via a tweet that he was replacing Secretary Shulkin with his White House doctor, Ronnie Jackson, who served in the previous administration. People may recognize him uh, from delivering the president's health report. Um, And for a couple days, it was kind of unclear exactly how that happened. But uh, David Shulkin came forward and started arguing that he had been fired, and the White House started saying that he had resigned. Uh, The reason for this debate is that there is a a federal uh, law that says if a, a, a cabinet secretary like David Shulkin is resigns or is otherwise uh, unable to perform the job, you can replace them with an interim pick. That law does not provide for an interim pick if David Shulkin were fired. And so the fact that Shulkin is saying, I was fired, and the White House is saying he's he resigned has serious implications for whether they can put in an interim pick, which Uh, the president announced in that tweet as Robert Wilkie. Uh, And Robert Wilkie would, of course, serve until Ronnie Jackson is confirmed or whoever else is confirmed to that job. So it's a significant uh, legal battle that could uh, shape how the VA is handled between now and the confirmation of the next secretary. Aaron, tell us a little bit more about Dr. Ronnie Jackson. I understand he's been a White House physician under several presidents. Yeah, I think if there's one thing that you'll you'll learn about Ronnie Jackson right away, it's that almost everybody likes him. Uh, when he delivered that uh, statement about President Trump's health, he earned some criticism from people who thought it was a little bit over the top, it was not serious, uh, and he was actually defended by members of the Obama administration who had only the highest praise for him personally. Um, that was perhaps his biggest entry into the public's consciousness. Usually, of course, the White House doctor is operating behind the scenes. Um, But he delivered a very strong, resounding almost uh, review of the president's health. He said at one point the president could live until he's 200 years old if he had had a better diet. Uh, The weight that he provided for the president led to some skepticism, given that it was only one pound away from rendering the president uh, technically obese. Uh, there was a lot in that report that I think caused people to raise their eyebrows. But but people like Ronnie Jackson, uh, nobody really has a bad word to say about him. The biggest question with him being nominated for this post, I would say, is whether he has the management experience that you need to run a troubled bureaucracy. And the other question is exactly what his views are on some significant policy areas in particular, privatization of the Veterans Administration, because, um, you know, he's pretty much a blank slate when it comes to policies. And uh, there's going to be a lot of questions, I suspect, at his confirmation hearing about that. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, privatization. Let's talk about that a little bit because that's going to be something we're going to speak to with our next guests about uh, concerns of how much the Trump administration will be opening up this idea that uh, more veterans can be seen by private providers. Uh, why is this a contentious issue? Well, this is an issue that has kind of been beneath the surface for a while, but there hasn't really been a big push for it. Uh and it's not even clear right now that the White House is going to push for this. It's almost it's more of a suspicion that this is the thing direction in which things are headed. Uh, David Shulkin had an op-ed in, in the New York Times after his exit in which he argued that there are forces that are pushing for this, uh, maybe suggesting that the president was one of those forces. Um, but basically, this is an issue that pits uh, every major veterans group against a, a pretty powerful veterans group that's headed up by the Koch brothers um, that wants to see a significant privatization of this process. And there was actually a, a piece of legislation that was passed in the, in the committee and uh, in the Senate that was passed 14 to 1 that would provide a kind of a middle ground approach that would provide somewhat more access to private medical facilities uh, it, it passed 14 to 1, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, in part because the White House is not on board, in part because it seems like this Concerned Veterans for America group that's headed up by the Kochs is not on board with it. And so there is a real sense that there is uh, there is a looming push towards privatization, even if we don't know that uh, there's necessarily a, a concerted and public effort to do this yet. I should say that uh, Dan Caldwell, executive director of Concerned Veterans for America, is on the line with us as we talk a little bit further about um, efforts uh, to, again, open up uh, health care for veterans to go to private providers versus uh, seeking care uh, traditionally uh, at VA uh, hospitals and community health centers. Uh, And I wanted to uh, bring Dan Caldwell into the conversation. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. So let's talk about uh, some of the reforms that we know uh, since 2014, uh, there have been significant calls for reform with the VA after that scandal of veterans waiting too long uh, to receive uh, the care that they need and then having some staff within the VA uh, fudging numbers, so to speak, uh, to, to, uh, to show that wait times weren't that terrible, that from that, uh, Congress passed the CHOICE program. So from the CVA perspective, Um, How do we move forward uh, to continue helping veterans receive the care they need in a timely manner? Well, first of all, um, we don't believe that you should privatize the VA or dismantle the VA. And and what we have proposed is giving veterans who use the VA, who qualify for VA care, the ability to use their benefits in the private sector if they choose. And having a choice means that you still need a robust VA. And uh, as Aaron's uh, own newspaper has pointed out, the Washington Post fact checker, uh, that that is not privatization. It's not selling off the VA to a private corporation and giving every veteran a voucher. That's not what we support. And there's really no serious effort, I think, as as Aaron was explaining earlier, uh, to do that. And it's being used as this straw man to kind of distract away from the, the real issues at the VA, and, and frankly, in Secretary Shulkin's case, his own behavior, which the, the Washington Post, again, did a really good job of exposing with his European travel. Um, and, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we think that that's the best model to ensure that veterans aren't trapped in a VA hospital, that, that 
isn't providing the best care. And then on the other hand, that they still have the VA as an option for some things, if that's what they think is best for them. Um, at the end of the day, the VA is just simply not set up properly to serve this generation of veterans. And the future one, it's still really set up to serve the World War II and Korean, Air gen- uh, Korean era generation of veterans. And that really needs to change. And we think the best way to do that is better integration with the private sector and giving veterans choice. I wanted to bring into the conversation K. Robert Lewis. He's American Legion Department Service Officer uh, for Connecticut. K. Robert, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you very much. So what is American Legion's uh, stance on uh, calls to open up uh, health care to allow veterans to see more veterans to see private providers? Does this bother you? Uh, well, I'll speak for for our state. Our national organization um, has made its... Uh, has made its position known, and like the um, like Dan's uh, uh, Dan's organization, uh, uh, we we supported legislation that did not make it into the omnibus bill, which would have combined all of the community care programs that that the VA administers into one program managed by the VA, and uh, to effectively. Um, um, Assist veterans um, when they're referred out to the um, to local doctors. In my own office, uh, I I uh, I work for the American Legion. We're co-located at a VA hospital. One of my staff um, has a sleep study being being scheduled and a and a pulmonary study being scheduled. But he's not doing it in. Newington or in West Haven, they are sending him to his lo- to his to his local hospital, and and that's under that um, um, overarching community care program. So that's something that uh, we do support um, uh, the legislation and the expanded oversight. And uh, um, so moving forward, that was something that uh, we're looking forward to being included in the next legislative session uh, what being do you brought s- up again. What do you say to Dan Caldwell, the executive director of Concerned Veterans for America? He said that the, the current system, the way it's set up, uh, it doesn't, uh, doesn't serve uh, this new generation of veterans. Well, I would um, we'd probably refer to Dan to, to, to explain how it doesn't serve them uh, rather than speculate that it does or or does not since I work at a location I uh, both clients and um, fellow veterans uh, there is a um, I can tell you that in our state uh, where the VA is partnered with Yukon Health is partnered with Yale um, uh, veterans get very high quality care because, uh, as you know, uh, uh, Yale is ranked one of the top hospitals in the nation, and our doctors are their doctors. So when people mm-hmm. say, well, I don't want to go to the VA and see one of those doctors, uh, our medical chief of staff is their medical chief of staff. So um, it, it is um, the system has grown. Um, there are now some 170 medical centers, well over 1,000 1,000 community-based healthcare clinics, uh, such as mine. I live in New London. I can walk to my outpatient clinic. That's where I get my care. Um, I had a a local injury. My doctor referred me to a 
um, local therapist. I, um, even though I worked in, in West Haven, um, I did not uh, go and get my therapy in, in West Haven. He said, I'm keeping you out of work. Why would I send you down there for that mm-hmm. when you can come two minutes over here? So better expanding, better oversight, um, and, um, um, and, and to Dan's uh, point, the VA and any federal agency has to grow and be flexible to the needs of current and future generations, whether it's in the VA or in any other VA or another any other agency. I wanted to go back to Dan Caldwell, Executive Director of Concerned Veterans for America. Uh, we heard Kay Robert talking about specifically uh, the resources and services available uh, to Connecticut uh, veterans, uh, uh, but obviously uh, there, this, the services and type of care that Connecticut veterans may get in this state through the U.S. VA mm-hmm. could be very different from other states. We know there have been uh, major issues with insufficient resources, lack of, uh, uh, lack of providers. Are you there, Dan? Yes, I'm there. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, I am. Uh, lack of uh, certain providers and doctors. So I guess what is uh, the best solution? Because we know that Congress has invested billions of dollars uh, to try to improve, again, the timeliness of care that veterans receive. Uh, that, that is correct on the investment front in the last 10 years. Um, and this isn't even in incorporating the, the nearly $10 billion of the VA healthcare system is getting in the, the recently passed omnibus bill. The, the, the VA's budget has doubled, and they've added 100,000 um, new employees for the health care. This is the Veterans Health Administration. And you've seen about a 30% uptick in, in patients. So the, the, the resources put in the system has far, out, uh, far outpaced the increase in demand. And when I said earlier that the VA system isn't aligned to serve the current generation of veterans, I'm not just talking about my generation of veterans, Iraq and Afghanistan vets. It's it's uh it's really even the, the Vietnam era, the Gulf War era, and and, and it's not a one size uh, you know a criticism or comparison. Um, in one state, as you referenced, you could have great care. You could have a lot of VA hospitals with with significant capacity, but in a lot of states, particularly in states where there's been a lot of population growth, like my hometown of Phoenix of um, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, where the VA waitlist scandal from 2014 began is that they they were not set up to serve the influx of of veterans. And and going back to my earlier point, when I say it's out of alignment for this current generation, again, not just talking about Iraq and Afghanistan vets, but all the way back to Vietnam era, is that 57% of the VA's medical facilities are 50 years or older. So it's not just an issue of them being older buildings. It's that they were built at a time to serve um, a much different veteran population, particularly the World War II and Korean era, which are unfortunately, um, you know, passing away and are, are leaving us rather quickly. Um, and so you're going to need to adjust the system to accommodate uh, the new veteran population and their, their health care needs and where they live. You're going to have further shrinking of the veteran population. There's going to be 5 million, about 5 million fewer veterans, according to VA's population model by the end of 2030. So you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to realign things and redesign the VA so that it can better serve those veterans um, while ensuring that with this more dispersed veteran population that they do have access to care. And going back to our main proposal, that we think is better integration with the private sector and choice.
Uh, this is where we live. Uh, today we're looking at uh, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, there's a change again at the top in terms of who's running the agency uh, now that uh, the former VA Secretary uh, Shulkin has been pushed out. Uh, there's a, a new guy that President Trump uh, would like to see heading uh, this, uh, this uh, giant bureaucracy, and that is uh, former White House physician uh, Ronnie Jackson. But we're also curious about plans to how they're going to reform uh, the veteran affairs system. On the phone with us, Dan Caldwell, Executive Director of Concerned Veterans for America. In studio with me, K. Robert Lewis, an American Legion Department Service Officer for Connecticut. If you're a Connecticut veteran, we'd like to hear from you, too, 860-275-7266. You know, I, uh, had, I understand that uh, last year the CHOICE program w- was set to expire. Again, this was the program Congress uh, approved to allow uh, veterans who were living um, so many miles from a VA facility to receive care from a private uh, private provider. That was set to expire under the Trump administration. A new law was uh, signed to extend this program until the money runs out. Where does that stand now? Uh, I believe the money, and uh, Dan can also speak to this, is that the uh, um, they have extended it, I think, twice. Initially, um, it was a, a three-year fix, if you will. And um, so it's I, I think we can we will agree that it wasn't a perfect solution, but it was a move in the right direction, which is also where the legislation, which uh, covers combining all of the community-based systems into one um, with with management. And um, many states do have issues, uh, Phoenix, Montana, places where, uh, it's difficult to to get doctors. Uh, uh, places where it's difficult to to develop capacity, if you will, and uh, some of the issues that 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 the VA has faced, and I think everybody has advocated for, is uh, speeding up the vetting process to hire a physician. It may take a full year to to vet somebody, and when they get the call from the VA, they they may have moved on to UConn, St. Raphael, St. Francis, and say thank you, but no thank you, I've already found a job. So, so um, the system itself, um, the bureaucracy, as Stan referred, it, uh, it's a government, it's a government bureaucracy, and it's um, uh, faced and uh, with issues ever since it has been started and veterans groups have 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 exercised oversight uh, since day one. I want to bring in just a listener conversation uh, call real quick. Ron's calling from West Hartford. Ron, I understand you get care from the Newington Healthcare Facility here in Connecticut. What's been your experience? Uh, my experience is excellent over there. Uh, I love going over there. I'm uh, 80% uh, service-connected disability Vietnam vet. And uh, the care I get over there is second to none. And I just want to make a quick comment, if I may. My primary care physician retired last year, and they still haven't replaced her. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been, I had to see a different doctor this year. But uh, it, it was just stated, I was listening in, uh, that they, they can't replace the physicians uh, quickly enough. But as, uh, as, as far as the care goes, it's excellent. It's second to none.
Ron, thank you for uh, telling us a little bit about your experience. I wanted to go back to Dan Caldwell, Executive Director of Concerned Veterans for America. Again, uh, the proposal out there to possibly expand uh, this choice program to even more veterans. Uh, The question and concern uh, from some lawmakers, as you know, Dan, is uh, you can outsource care, but um, who's going to be watching and making sure that the VA uh, continues to follow its responsibility to these veterans? Well, I I think that at the end of the day, that that falls a lot on Congress to ensure that that happens. And again, nobody is proposing removing the VA as the primary guarantor of care for veterans. Um, This this isn't, there isn't a movement, and I can't emphasize enough because I think that this is really turning to a false narrative that is driving this conversation in, in the wrong direction. There isn't this this movement to sell off or dismantle the VA. Everybody recognizes that you need to have the VA um, guaranteeing that veterans get access to this care. And and Congress has a role to play. The the White House, the administration has a role to play. And I think that it's important that veterans who are having a good experience and want to remain there still have that option to stay in the VA. And and I'll be candid as somebody who is very critical of the VA. Um, we have found that, yes, there are significant um, number of veterans, including the one calling in, who, who are having a positive experience. We don't want to take that experience away. But on the other hand, you know, as we sit right now, there's about 500,000 appointments within the VA that are taking over 30 days or more to complete. And it's actually longer in some cases because the VA calculates their wait times a bit differently than some private sector um, medical facilities. But that is still a large number of veterans that are waiting a significant amount of time for for care. And in many cases, those veterans have private options near them that are convenient to them that they can access to get more timely and, in some cases, better quality care. I just I can't emphasize enough, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to this that's going to apply to every VA in every state. Um, a lot of VAs are in different circumstances depending on the population in the area, depending on the private sector capacity in their area, and also depending, too, on um, the type of talent that they can attract. So, uh, you know, the listener mentioned the, the, the inability to replace the primary care provider. That's a, that's a situation across the whole medical system is that we're facing a shortage of primary care providers that, that needs to be addressed as well, too. So I, I just can't emphasize enough, this isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, and we don't want it to be a top-down um, dictated approach. At the end of the day, where the veterans go and where they want to go is going to dictate more than anything what the VA looks like in the future under a choice model. Dan Caldwell, we have to leave it there. Executive Director of Concerned Veterans for America. Thank you for your time, Dan. Thank you. Also in studio, K. Robert Lewis, American Legion Department Service Officer for Connecticut. Thank you for your time. My pleasure, man. Coming up, veterans with other than honorable discharges aren't eligible to receive certain benefits, but there's been a movement to help those veterans, especially those with post-traumatic stress. We'll hear from one Connecticut veteran who just got his discharge upgraded. That's after the break.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Americans join the armed forces for a number of reasons, and when they finish serving in the military, they receive an honorable discharge, making them eligible for certain benefits like health care, educational assistance, and disability compensation. Now, a discharge of anything other than honorable leaves a veteran with little to no benefits. The Military Times reported recently the Defense Department estimates tens of thousands of veterans with less than honorable discharges could be eligible for upgrades. A Connecticut veteran who had joined in a suit with the Yale Veterans Legal Services Clinic over what's called bad paper discharges recently found out he got the upgrade he'd been seeking. Steve Kennedy joins me now in studio, an Army veteran and Connecticut team leader for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America known as IAVA. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I mentioned to our listeners your discharge status was recently upgraded from um, other than honorable to honorable. You've been waiting eight years for this? Yes. Yes. So I, got, uh, I had a general discharge. And um, eight years ago was when I first uh, applied for an upgrade and just last Thursday um, finally got it. Uh, for our listeners who um, may not have a veteran in their family, they're not veterans themselves, this might be hard for them to understand. But with that particular discharge, if you don't get an honorable discharge, it impacts the benefits that you get um, after you've served. So tell us how it impacted you. What were you not able to receive? So for me, I was fortunate enough that I got a general discharge as opposed to an other than honorable discharge. So I was excluded from the GI Bill. Um, I still had most of my other benefits intact. Um, for many other veterans, if it, uh, in really similar situations, there's almost, when you look at the, the data and pull up individual cases, there's almost no difference um, between someone who gets a general discharge and gets an other than honorable discharge overall. It's completely at the uh, discretion of the commander. Um, and if you get an other than honorable discharge, you have access to almost no benefits unless you go through a years-long process of either getting a discharge upgrade or getting what's called a characterization of service determination that would open up some benefits to you. Now, we were talking specifically about benefits, but having this general discharge impacted you after serving your country. Yes. it's um, So the military isn't like just a regular job. It's it's an identity. Uh, it's It's something that you live this every single day. You put on that uniform every day, and you basically wear your entire resume uh, on your on your uniform too. You have your rank, your unit, uh, any badges you earn, tabs, things like that. It's it, the army is you, and you are the army. Uh, so to come out of the end of that and uh, have them say that your service was was anything less than than honorable, it's there's no way to take that um, and not internalize it as. Uh, not just a judgment on you know your performance in your job or something like that, but as a judgment of your your character. Uh, so, practically, um, again, fortunately, uh, this doesn't have a huge impact, but uh, emotionally, it's I'm, I'm still kind of processing. I mean, this is like I said, I've had you know, almost nine years now to kind of internalize this and feel like not even really a full part of the community, not a real uh, a real veteran even, uh, and to have that recognized, I'm still kind of uh, processing. <laughs> so. And we should uh, let our listeners know. So the reason you got that particular discharge status is you had gone AWOL for a certain portion of time while you were still in the U.S. Army uh, for your, your wedding and, and honeymoon. But this was related also to your diagnosis of post-traumatic stress. Uh, yes. So that's what was, was kind of important with the, the way that the Army uh, made this final decision uh, is that they, they included um, uh, avoidance behaviors as, as being associated with PTSD and then, so going AWOL in the first place, almost providing uh, the proof of the link between PTSD and going AWOL, uh, which is why they're able to to overturn this. Uh, it's the kind of thing where it's not 
I mean, I get that's not totally obvious, the link just on its face, but when you're dealing with something like PTSD, I mean, for me, I came back, I, I had a lot of hypervigilance symptoms, and I was really just kind of fatalistic still. I mean, I had, while I was over there, the way that I dealt with things was just to assume that something was going to happen to me. If you are expecting to, to die or be wounded or something like that, it makes it much easier to do your job. But it's hard to turn that off when you get back home. And when you're thinking that um, you don't really have a future, there's nothing, um, there's nothing forward, uh, kind of in the future for you. It's really can be difficult to appreciate uh, kind of the consequences of some of your actions. And and it. So when I was faced with this kind of high pressure situation where I all of a sudden didn't have leave to go to my wedding, I I did it. I mean, this was something that I could at least do for my family now because, I mean, I was suicidal, I mean, as far as I was concerned, um, I wasn't going to be around anymore. Uh, so it's, it's difficult, it's difficult to, um, to really appreciate that mm-hmm. at the time. And I, to take that then and say that that is what's going to characterize the entirety of your service after, after serving in Iraq as an infantryman in the 82nd Airborne Division, it's, that, that's really hard to accept. Mm-hmm. We should say that you're doing well now, and you're just one of hundreds of thousands of veterans who may have, uh, again, these discharges that are other than honorable, general discharges impacting the type of uh, benefits that they get. Um, Those with post-traumatic stress, has there been movement in Congress to help with these so-called bad paper discharges? Uh, Yes. So, I mean, and even just in this case, I mean, this lawsuit, this is a class of about 59,000 people. So uh, we're hoping that this continues to move forward for the rest of the class. Uh, but then there has been uh, movement at the federal level in Congress. Uh, so just last week in the omnibus spending package, there was uh, the Honor Our Commitment Act was included in that, which opens mental health care to veterans with other than honorable discharges, uh, which they didn't have access to before. And then at the state level as well, we're working on uh, a bill uh, Senate Bill 284, which would open state benefits to veterans with other than honorable discharges. Uh, and this would include things like uh, substance abuse treatment, um, transitional housing, there's long-term care, uh, education waivers, things like that. So that people can really, now that they have access to medical treat, uh, mental health care treatment, they can get some of these other transitional benefits that will allow them to really fully reintegrate back into uh, the civilian world here in Connecticut. We should mention the legislature's Veterans Affairs Committee has approved this state proposal, and so that needs a now uh, a vote from both the Senate and House to become law. Uh, thank you so much, Steve Kennedy, for coming on. I know uh, it's it's a lot to talk about in a short period of time, but we're happy to hear that you finally got that upgrade discharge. and. This suit moving ahead with the Yale Veterans Legal Services Clinic, that's still an uh, an issue that impacts a lot of veterans here in Connecticut and nationwide. Thank you so much. Steve Kennedy again, who also is the Connecticut team member for the Iraq and Afghanistan uh, Veterans of America, known as IAVA. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Thanks to uh, uh, Kion Wolf and Julius Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.